about that in a little bit. But today, I, Mark has kind of a messy, weird ending, okay? And so we're gonna ask the question, how did it end? <laughs> how did it actually end? If you've, and I wanna encourage you not to just receive the scriptures on Sundays, to actually get a Bible. And I wanna encourage you to get something other than just a digital Bible that's already connected to all the distractions in life. Get a physical Bible that you can actually read on your own in everyday life. Even if you take the scriptures that were read on a weekend, bring them home and read through them, I wanna encourage you to do that. And you may have been confused as you read towards the end of Mark. Uh, and so we're gonna clarify a few things real quick in regards to that. Um, really, we ended Mark last week when Tom preached. But not really. But, but really we did, but not really. Uh, so Tom, as you know, he brought us um, in Mark chapter 16, one through verses eight. But you will notice um, in, if you have a printed copy of the Bible, and, and actually it'll show up digitally as well if you look it up, especially in any modern translation, you'll notice verses nine through 20 is italicized. And in some translations, it's actually put in as a footnote. And so let me just take a few moments and explain uh, a little bit of the purpose of that. And I'm just gonna give two brief points and then we're gonna go into a very specific portion of chapter 16 together, which I believe is the actual ending for, Mark, for the Mark's gospel. The first thing I wanna point out is this. Scholarly consensus is that uh, uh, knowing what we know now, Mark chapter 16, 19 through 20 was not originally written by Mark at all. It is not actually the ending to the book of Mark. And, uh, and so that's the first thing I wanna point out, that when Mark actually wrote this, it's a memoir of Peter that Mark was the scribe and wrote, and that very first document written on a papyrus scroll is called an, called an autograph, that's what it's called, and, and this very first document was written for the ancient church in Rome because at that time, this is the first gospel, we've said this over and over since September 29th, 2021, but I'm gonna say it again, Mark was written for a church that was in a cultural crisis, was in absolute chaos. If you think right now culture is crazy, it, it's, it's nowhere compared to what it was in first century Rome, where Christians were even being burned on streets to be lanterns to light up the streets, widespread persecution and danger, and there was no written account up to that point of Jesus. Can you imagine? You're trying to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus died, rose again, was ascended, and you're trying to like, contain the truths and the realities of who Jesus is, yet at the same time, you, you don't have anything written down. So this firsthand account from Peter was written down by Mark, given to this church in Rome, not just one church, but churches scattered throughout the Roman Empire to be read in one sitting and passed to the next church to create clarity and chaos, to show in the midst of chaos this is our North Star. This is who Jesus is. There are so many things that are gonna to try to take our attention away from Jesus. So many cultural wars and crises, everything going around, the fear will grip us. But this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has called us to. And, and so that's what this, this book or this gospel was written to, the, the first century church in Rome. And people in churches, as you might know, wanted copies. But here's the thing. They didn't have copy machines. We are so... Blessed. I was going to say spoiled, but we're blessed. Like, you could just take it right over there in the other room. You could just print off a page of Mark. They couldn't do that. 
And so they would, they would have scribes that would copy the originals, and, and those copies of the original were, were called manuscripts. And I know I'm going through some details here because I think it's important, and then we'll go into some of the meat of this message today. And we have thousands of ancient Bible manuscripts, and we're still discovering them. And in the multitude of manuscripts, we're actually able to discern uh, through all sorts of means, which you can research if you want to. I'm not gonna take time to go into today. What was actually original and what wasn't? So if you look in modern translations like the NIV, for instance, which is what we use um, most of the time, I study in many different translations. All of our teachers do. We just use this because it's one of the most widely accessible. And, and, and so that's really why. And it says the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses don't have verses nine through 20. Or the NLT says the most reliable early manuscripts of the gospel of Mark ends at verse eight. And so we know, and it is scholarly consensus, that the gospel of Mark ended at verse eight and did not originally include nine through 20. The second thing I wanna point out is this. God made sure that we, that what was originally written was accurate and has given us the tools to get back to it. And so for some of you, this might excite you. For others, it might bore you, but it's important. Um, Through textual criticism, internally and externally, we have the ability to discover what was originally written. And, And yet, because there were so many later manuscripts that did include Uh, verses nine through 20. In fact, there are actually four different endings to Mark, and I'll explain some of the theories around how that happened and why that happened in a little bit. And some other older English translations, like the King James, include it as a part of the gospel. Some of the modern translators created it as a footnote at the end of Mark so not to confuse those who are used to older translations and are like, did you cut that out of the Bible? They actually want to clarify to not create widespread confusion why this is a footnote. And all that said, I am not going to teach what we, what we know is not the ending to the Gospel of Mark, verses 9 through 20. So what in the world are we going to do today? I thought we could break up into groups and play Duck, Duck, Goose. It's not Gray Duck. Uh, stop it. Stop it. Only in Minnesota, people. Um, I'm a Minnesotan now, though, right? Amen! Um, Okay. All that said, so what we're going to do today, um, because Tom taught through verse 8 last week, is we're going to zoom in on the uniqueness of the last four words of Mark as we know it as a capstone sermon, sermon number 70 of this series. And so the context is this. Uh, Tom preached a wonderful Easter message last week. How many of you know every day is Easter? Because Jesus is risen and ascended and we get to leave and live in the freedom of the resurrection right here now. And so the context is this. Jesus died, and within three hours, they had to get Jesus' body off the cross. And they, um, Joseph of Arimathea, they put Jesus, gave him a tomb um, that was fit for a king. He died a criminal, but was buried in a tomb fit for a king uh, as, he, as he buried Jesus and, and put Jesus in there. It was, the next day was Sabbath, and everything was kind of quiet, was quiet, right? And then the day after Sabbath, women went to the tomb of Jesus to bring spices to care for the body of Jesus because Jesus had died and they loved Jesus. 
And that's the context of this passage. And I wanna read verse eight, and here's what it says. Verse eight says, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Have you ever watched a movie that just ended on a cliffhanger? And you're like, I hate this movie. <laughs> Anybody ever have that happen? Uh, and, and you just want a tidy conclusion. You don't want a tidy conclusion. You want an epic conclusion where everything's tied in a nice bow and everything comes together perfectly and victoriously just like our everyday life. That's what you want. That's what I want. Um, because they were afraid. This, these last four words are kind of a downer way to end, so it seems. And in fact, one of the theories is, and this is, we know that ancient scribes many times when they would, when they would come alongside a text, uh, many were committed to very detail-oriented ways of copying one manuscript or one autograph to a manuscript. Very detailed. Some scribes were also concerned with adorning it or making it a little bit prettier. So some of the theories are, the reason why there's in ancient manuscripts, not the earliest, most accurate ones, but some they'll find up to four different endings to mark is because some of the scribes didn't like this ending. Humans are human then as much as they are right now. And so, which is just fascinating to me. And this actually reminded me, my mind went to our mission as a church family. If you know, our mission um, is to invite people into the struggle of becoming fully alive in God. And we could, we could build all the stories throughout scripture around that, that sort of birth out of the Bible. And there's many ways to say that. But when we say that, we invite people into the struggle of becoming fully alive in God. I wanna say this to you that some people don't like that word struggle in there. Maybe at some point that was you where you saw that and you're like, why can't we just invite people to become fully alive? Why do we gotta invite people into the struggle? Uh, in fact, there, I'm just gonna say it, uh, there have been church consultants over time that have actually encouraged to take some of those types of words out to make it more inspirational. And I have a huge problem with that. And here's why. Let's do a collective exercise together. If you're online, you can join with us. If, and if you've been following Jesus for more than 10 years, raise your hand. Nothing wrong if it's less, but if it's more, that's a lot of people. Keep your hand up. No, no, keep your hand up. Now put your hand down if your journey with Jesus has had no struggle. <laughs> keep your hands up. There. Uh, and, and, but that's the point. That's... That's absolutely, that's kind of the point. To invite people in the struggle of becoming fully alive in God is, it's, it's our human experience. In fact, here's, here's the, um, I, I love these last four words because um, as we struggle, because we're in, a, in, in an already not yet kingdom of God world, meaning there is goodness, there is God's kingdom breaking through, and there's darkness and sin and brokenness, how can we not struggle as we're trying to find our way and we're facing temptations in the midst of it? And so I like to look at our life with Jesus less like a machine that's broken and we gotta fix it, and more like a garden that we're nurturing, and over time we grow more and more and more in freedom. 
the freedom of the kingdom of God. And that process of growth can actually be a struggle as wind comes and, and storms rage and the ground dries out and, and yet we're, we're nurturing, we're growing through, throughout that and we're experiencing more freedom and we're becoming, our characters growing in the image of Christ over time. And uh, I love the last four words of Mark because just like this, this little mission statement that we have, they're honest. They are human and it, it, so they're honest and they're, they're like human. These women left afraid. But it, these last four words actually continue a theme that we see throughout the book of Mark. And it is a theme centered around the word fear. And so we're going to enter into that theme a little bit here through the book of Mark. Um, uh, we're going to look at the broader theme of fear through the book of Mark to understand what's happening in verse eight. And so the word afraid or fear in the Greek, so the original word, and we're gonna track it so that we can see the same word show up over and over through Mark is phobeo. Uh, go ahead and say that with me, phobeo. Does it remind you of a word? It does, doesn't it? Phobia, um, it means fear or to be afraid, and it appears 13 times in the book of Mark. Now, seven of those times are how you would think about fear. That the, you know, in, in Mark 12, 12, the uh, Pharisees are afraid of the people. They're actually afraid of the people. So when you think of a scary word, a hard word, a difficult fear, a difficult word, seven times, that's what fear represents. But six of those times, fear is used in a positive way. So I want to give you three references. And if you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to write them down on your phone, on paper, write these references down because you can track this through the Bible. If you have a paper copy of the Bible, literally you can see these three passages all on one page. And I like to draw the lines. I actually do write in my Bible and I, I draw lines to each other and I can see in my Bible how they're linked and I can see um, how this comes together. And so the first one is in Mark chapter four, verse 41. This is where Jesus calmed calm the storm. And, and so Jesus is on a boat and there is a storm and it's not just any storm. These types of storms that would hit the Sea of Galilee and still do uh, are storms that can kill you. They're very scary storms. And so the storm entered in, the disciples are on the boat. During the storm, Jesus is sleeping it's a very weird and cool story. The disciples are probably annoyed. They wake Jesus up, but there's this one moment where Jesus actually speaks to nature. Peace be still, and the storm stops. And here's what it says. It says they, Mark 4, 41, they were afraid. Phobeo, the same word. And then we move on to Mark 5, 15. And again, I'm just gonna use three of the six, not all six. And in this passage here, Jesus casts out demons from a man um, and, and these demons went into 2,000 pigs that ran off into the water and were drowned. It's a really weird story. Now, there were people who were tending the pigs, and they probably thought all sorts of things, but what they saw, they saw the man who was demon-possessed, they saw that he was no longer naked and that he was in his right mind. So they saw that Jesus actually healed him, and here's what it says. It, it says, that they were afraid in Mark 5.15, phobeo, same word. And then in Mark 5.33, there was a woman, one of my favorite stories in, in, in the Gospel of Mark. There was a woman who had a, a disease for how long? 12 years, some of you know the story. She had a, she had a disease for 12 years and, and she touched the hem of Jesus' garment 
Jesus felt power go out of him. He turned to look at her. She, and she experienced the healing physically, physical healing. She is set free from this bondage. And there's all sorts of layers of healing, which I won't get into today. And it says this in Mark 5.33, she trembled with fear, bail. And here's a, an obvious question I wanna point out that stands out to me in this, and, and as we look at the theme of fear throughout the Gospel of Mark. And the obvious question is this, why in the world were they afraid? Jesus protected them. Jesus set them free. Jesus healed them. And they left afraid. Why? If Jesus broke into your life right now, like a, and we don't treat Jesus like a genie in the bottle, like do, do whatever, do whatever, you know, I want you to do. We don't lead Jesus and say, go do that. And we actually follow Jesus and there's all sorts of healing and things that Jesus will do throughout the course of our life. And we know that at the end, in the age to come, we will all be healed and made whole. But if Jesus answered your wildest prayer right now, what would go through your mind? Do you think that fear would be your number one response or gratitude? Falling on your face, thank you, Jesus. Why were they afraid? It, this response can feel really confusing. And I wanna name this. Their worldview was this. They, Jesus was their rabbi, Jesus was a prophet, and Jesus was human. These people walked with Jesus. They had to pull over to pull over the camels, the donkeys, to have bathroom breaks with Jesus. Maybe not with them, but in different trees. And, and they, they, they got sweaty and smelly together. They smelled Jesus' body at times walking through the Middle East heat. They, they ate, Jesus was at times hungry and, and probably exhausted. They saw, they saw it all in Jesus' life. This was their, their world, their worldview of Jesus was he was a rabbi, he was a prophet, he was human, and there was hints that he's so much more, but this was primary for them. And when Jesus did these miracles, he completely obliterated their tiny worldview of him. And, and you gotta imagine, like, in fact, I'm gonna turn to it in Psalms. I'm not, you can look it up, just write it down. In Psalm 107, uh, it's such a fascinating passage here. And this, this, this kind of, verse is in the Hebrew mind. They, they understood this about creator God. Here's the poetry from the Psalms. It says, some went out onto the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonders and his, and his deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest and lifted high the waves. They mounted up like the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. So, sounds like the story of Mark, doesn't it? They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were, they were at their wits' ends. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea he hushed. And this is what they know. They, they know that the only one who can calm storms, like Jesus calmed the storm, is creator God. And so here's, here's what I imagine. <laughs> and Jesus says to the storm, peace be still, the storm calms down. In my Hebrew Jewish imagination, I realize the only one who can do that 
throughout the traditions of our faith is creator God. So now all of a sudden I'm outside under the stars. Maybe the sky is clearing and you can begin to see the stars as the storm went away. And I'm looking at the stars, this is what I imagine, and I'm looking at Jesus, the one that I ate with, took bathroom breaks with, journeyed with, that got tired with. And I'm, going, I'm looking at Jesus and I'm looking up at the stars. How can creator God be this man? How, how, how can that, and, and it becomes really disorienting when there's a way that you thought your entire life and then in a moment that way is just blown up. You don't know what to do. And one of the natural human emotions that can fill that void is fear. As you may know, if you've ever experienced a moment like that, and so with this context, we, be, we can begin to see the last four words of Mark much clearer. What did these women expect to find at the tomb when they came to visit Jesus? What did they expect to find? Does anybody know? They were bringing spices. And they were bringing spices not to grill, although it was probably a really pretty setting. They were bringing them to, to take care of the dead body of Jesus. So you're right. They they came to find Jesus' dead body. Why? Why did they come there to find Jesus' dead body? Because they expected Jesus to do what all dead people do. Say it with me. Stay dead. Yes. In fact, you've heard me say it on Easter, and I'm gonna say it today in the middle of the summer, towards the end. <laughs> end of summer. Um, I'm going to say it today uh, towards, the, towards the end of summer that, that everybody on that first Easter Sunday, uh, nobody went to the tomb. Nobody expected Jesus to be risen from the dead. And, and when they showed up, the small dead Jesus they expected to find resurrected and was bigger than they imagined. And, and it's, it's one, of those, one of those moments. And it says that they left the tomb and they said nothing to anyone. So you can picture, like, here's what I would think. I would think that if, if Jesus, who was dead, had risen again, I heard it said, there's an angel in the tomb. Jesus is gonna meet us in Galilee. I'd run out of there screaming to everybody, Jesus is risen! Cue the sunrise, and we're so excited. Like, yes, it's happened. that's not what happened here. They ran away in silence because they were afraid and they didn't open up their mouths till they got to the disciples. They were afraid, those four words, because they were phobeo, afraid. Why does this matter? Okay, here's why this matters. Um, I'm actually going to introduce to you two words today that you may or may not be familiar with. I cheated, thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> the first word is transcendent, and the first word is imminent, okay? And these words really matter when we look at this passage. Um, and, and the first word, transcendent, here's what I want to encourage you to, to think about. Uh, when you think about the word transcendent, think about the words big and far, right? So uh, big and far. Transcendent means if God is transcendent, God is outside of space and time. 
And now the, this other word, imminent, uh, is a little bit different. In fact, that word there means inside of space and time. So when you think about the word imminent, instead of thinking about the word big and far, think about the words close and intimate. So transcendent, as related to God, means God is outside of time and space, not held by the bounds of creation. And I think we'd say that's true about God. And if we look at the word imminent, these two terms, which are held in tension together when we're dealing with theology, this word means that God is also inside space and time and has come close to us and can be experienced and we can have intimacy with the living God. These two words at the same, at the same time. Now, the first century view of God is uh, and I would say this is a functional view of God in the first century um, for the religious people, I would say is transcendent, that God is transcendent. God is, if I'm a religious leader in that day and we know some of the spirit of some of the religious leaders, there is a sense that God is really big and they don't have a relationship with God, but through moral performance, they are earning their way to God. And as they see themselves as closer to God, who is far away than others, they can have moral superiority over others and look down at people. It's that religious pride that you smell all through the book of Mark as we've been studying. But not just the religious leaders. Actually, the followers of Jesus had a functional worldview as well, that God was transcendent. And this worldview, is, it's why they struggled with who Jesus really was. How clear could, if you read the Gospels, Jesus is so clear who he is, yet they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it until the very end, until Jesus rose and, and ascended. And even then, some struggled. Like, who is this Jesus? As we're walking with him and he's, he's talking about how he's gonna die, he's talking about the temple being torn down and raised again and, and all this stuff, these miracles that are happening. How could you not see that Jesus is both God and man? Well, they had this functional worldview that God is um, transcendent and it's why the woman showed up at the tomb to care for Jesus's, or God is, in, yeah, transcendent. It's why the women showed up to care for Jesus's dead body. Because dead Jesus cannot be God. If God is transcendent outside of space and time, far away, and there is a sense that God is making his way and with his people, but their functional worldview is God is actually further away than a man standing right in front of them. And Jesus, and so that's why they showed up to the tomb, Jesus' dead body. How can transcendent God also be close and intimate? And here's a question I wanna ask. What about us? in the church in 2023? What about you and me? Um, here, I wanna name something about the culture here at Church of the Open Door that I've experienced that was here long before I was here. I've been here two and a half years. In November, it'll be three years, and I'm so grateful. One of the things that I'm most grateful for is this is a grace culture. That has been my experience. I've, as I've heard stories throughout the years, um, and I've even heard there was a season in the church's life where a nickname that was actually published in the paper wasn't Church of the Open Door, but Church of the Open Sore, because people who were hurting could come here to find love and life and healing. This is a place of grace. This is a place, honestly, I was gonna say this, I, I'm honored to, to serve as a pastor. It's not my identity, I'm honored 
Um, I have some wirings that, are, that I believe God has given me to serve in this way. I steward it. It's not a high up position. According to the Bible, it's a position of, of servanthood, of washing feet. So, that, But here's what I've experienced here. There is, in this culture of grace, I have personally felt more free to be human and to not be put on pedestals, spiritual pedestals. I'm really grateful for that. That's been my lived experience. We see it in some of the words, and sometimes if you've ever been a part of an, uh, an organization, and the church, I believe, is way more than an organization. It's alive, it's an organism, but there is an organization aspect to it, and if you've ever been a part of an organization that had something on the wall as, as its mission, and you just felt like it just lived a totally different way, it was more an aspiration, that has not been my experience here. And I, and I will say, we haven't arrived and we're very imperfectly welcoming people into the struggle of becoming fully alive. We're very imperfectly embracing a cultural value of brokenness is welcome here. But we are on that journey of doing that. And let me just ask, how many of you that's been your experience? You've experienced that here, a culture of grace, yeah. And if you haven't yet, oh, I know. I mean, there's definitely times as human beings where we experience the church and it's not so graceful. I get that. But it is a culture of grace. And here's why I point that out. In a grace culture, we easily embrace teachings about God's love and nearness. And it's good because God does love us and God has come near. And we love those teachings. And by the way, we gotta be reminded of them all the time. I mean, how many times have I done my little hand thing? Eh, God's close. You just turn, God's right there. God is closer than you think and loves you so much. Can I hear an amen? amen. Yes. We, it's good. It's, it, yes, it's not bad. It's a good thing. But here's, here's what I want to name. Um, in a grace culture, we can, if we're not careful, easily lose wonder. And we can forget the transcendence of God. So I want to ask a question. And if your shoe fits, wear it. Wear it. But we live in the culture of enlightenment. Um, where in, in our Western culture, we, d we don't like to grapple with things that we can't fit into our brain. That's another layer to this. It's the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. Where is the worldview exploding, imagination expanding, biblical fear of the majesty and transcendence of Jesus in our culture and in our churches today? I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm asking where so that you can survey your own heart. Are you in awe or are you bored? Okay, why does this cultural comparison that I'm talking about now even matter? Here's where things get fun. Here's why it matters. Oh yeah, that's good. Yeah, this is going really well. You guys see what I'm drawing here? Can I have an usher over here? Take this man out. Um that's an airplane, people. 
And here's a question that I wanna ask you today. If you were to leave on an airplane today, which wing do you wanna fly with? This wing or that wing? Have you ever asked that question? No, you haven't. (laughs) Because you are smart enough to know you need both wings to fly. I wanna name that because it's the same with transcendence and imminence. We need both or our faith doesn't work. In fact, here's what I believe. I believe that we, when we embrace one without the other, it leads to a counterfeit faith, something that God never intended for us. And let me show you why. And this is gonna be my best cultural commentary and you can add your own. Symptoms of one without the other. Transcendence without imminence. Transcendence without imminence. You're flying with this wing, but not that wing. Transcendence without imminence embraces the idea that God is beyond knowing, far away, removed from the details of your life and mine. In other words, God is big, but not close and intimate. Some of the symptoms of Embracing the transcendence of God, the bigness of God, but not the close, intimate nature of God to you and me is this. Your faith practices have become an obligation. Your moral performance causes you to either feel defeated or superior to others because you are wrapped up not in a God who came close to you, who pursues you, but but one far away that you have to, in your moral effort, make yourself closer to or you're falling further away from. And so it's, it's a symptom of embracing the bigness of God, the, the transcendent God is outside of space and time, but ignoring the imminence of God. Now, imminence without transcendence. So now you're flying with this wing and not this wing. Imminence, the, the closeness, the intimate nature of God without the transcendence, that God is big, that God created it all, that God gives you the air in your lungs, that God keeps the sun burning so our planet can stay alive. That God who hung the stars, who, who the galaxies work like clockwork because of God, tilted the moon at just the right way to be able to keep everything working on our planet. That God, the God that, that created everything. You have, we have the imminence, but without the transcendence. It's the idea of embracing that Jesus is close and intimate and knowable and small. In other words, Jesus is a part of your life but not big enough to be Lord of your life. Some of the symptoms. One is, I believe, cynicism or or boredom. There's no wonder, hopelessness. Uh, I believe one of the symptoms is when faith becomes self-centered. And as I say this, you gotta know, It's not a lens of judgment. It's a lens of conviction for us to be called out into a wider view to embrace both. And um, I actually believe that one of the main symptoms as well is compromise. One of them, I believe, is theological compromise. A me faith, a me faith does this. When when we have a a creator God, the, the king of kings, We ask the question, what's the way? You created it all, what's the way? 
And we take the scriptures that have been given to us and we look at it as a lens with which we look through to see and evaluate our life. But when Jesus is small, intimate, knowable, but not transcendent, we reverse that, right? Not big enough to be our Lord. So now I am the lens with which I, and the culture is a lens with which I read the Bible. And I will, I will construct in this whatever I wanted to say. I will import the beautiful things and I will export the things that are uncomfortable. We can create a world of compromise. And I want to read a scripture that I've, I've, I've looked at before, but I, I actually want to read it to you because I do believe it's cultural commentary for the world we live in today in a culture of compromise. 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4. And it says this. Preach the word, be prepared in and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction for a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will return their ear, they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. And... That is a very lived experience right now. Um, He's talking about a day that will come when the church will exchange doctrines of God for doctrines of desire. And uh, it's why I've said it before that if the Bible always agrees with you, you're probably shaping it instead of it shaping you. So, and this, this leads, in a sense, to moral compromise. And there's tremendous pressure on the church to give in and to make concessions to accommodate the spirit of the age. Enormous pressure. I feel them every day. But in the prophet, these haunting words of the prophet of Isaiah come to my mind. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. And so what happens, um, this, is, this, can ha- this is what can happen when we open up uh, or what opens up wide the door of concession and compromise, I believe it is when we lose the transcendent authority of God, where it's all grace but no authority. And so for the women at the tomb, these words were coming, these worlds were coming together at the same time. They they didn't see Jesus at the tomb, but you can imagine, they're imagining he rose from the dead and they fully expected to find a dead Jesus and and they hear Jesus is alive and these, these two transcendent imminence, not of, not of some ethereal God, but of the person of Jesus, is, it's beginning to crash together in, in their minds. And for us today, we need both. Anything else, like I said, can create a counterfeit faith. God is transcendent and imminent. God is both outside space and time and in space and time. God is utterly beyond us and deeply within us, desiring relationship with us. You might have heard the word omnipresent before. I love this word because what this word means is that God is not divided into little pieces all throughout creation. You get a little bit of God. You get a little bit of God. I get a little bit of God. Omnipresent (laughs) means this, that God is fully present on Saturn's rings, Sustaining the sun and in your heart. And I love that because when I was younger, I, I used to hear Jesus would come into your heart and I would, I would picture a little living room right here. <laughs> Open up the door in our little child imagination. 
And there's this imagery that N.T. Wright gives. I've used it here before. It's less all of God entering into us. When we surrender to Jesus, we, it's like jumping into an ocean. So it's like a sunken ship where the ocean is inside the ship. But the greater truth is that the ship is inside the ocean. It's a beautiful imagery for this life with God. And we see it in John 15, that we would abide in God and God would abide with us. So in this reality, we experience something deeply profound. And this is what I'm gonna end with. We experience the intimate and infinite love of God found in Jesus Christ. Paul says it like this, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. There is a love directed at you that you can't fit into your brain. It's not a tiny love that you can manipulate or manage, take the good things from, push the, push the things that are uncomfortable away. It is an all-encompassing love that is inviting you to, to shape your, and to not, God doesn't come to us to the desires that we have so that God could take the desires that we have to be able to make us feel comfortable in them. God comes to actually confront the desires we have, to replace the desires we have so that God can become our number one desire. Because the transcendent greatness of God reveals how great his love is for us. And so I'm gonna read one of my favorite poems. And this is um, a poem called The Love of God Written. It was eventually put into a hymn, but before that it was an 11th century Jewish poet in Germany who wrote these words that I think capture beautifully what we're talking about today, the transcendent, imminent nature of God. And here's what it says. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Go ahead and stand up with me today if you're able. And... Uh, Worship team, you can go ahead and come up and Ren, would you would you help me and grab this? Thanks, brother. Thanks so much. We are gonna we are going to receive communion today, um, and as we do, here is simply what I want to say. Jesus really did die for you. Jesus died so that you could be set free from the world, your flesh, the devil, so that your sin could be forgiven. It actually happened. And so what we do is we follow this tradition of doing what Jesus did at the Last Supper before he died with his disciples. It's been passed down through the church and, and I think was shared around normal dinner tables throughout the early church and we Many times when we're eating dinner at our house, we thank God for his body was broken, his blood that was shed for us. But we do it today collectively as a church family, this physical act, remembering what Jesus actually did for us. And here's what I wanna encourage you to do, to receive this little cracker that represents the body of Jesus broken for you, to dip it in the cup that represents the blood of Jesus shed for you, and to ask God, 
to bring the worlds together of the intimate love that he has for you in the infinite awe, the greatness of God, the magnificence, awe-inspiring nature of God, that God would give you that as well, that we would receive this with deep love, but also deep awe and wonder. There's another act. It's called baptism. It's all throughout scripture where somebody who gave their life to Jesus would actually get dunked in water representing your old life going down and your new life coming up. And we have a tank out there in the gathering place and I'm making some people nervous because we were not planning this today. If you wanna get baptized today because you're giving your life to Jesus or you have and you haven't been, I will go home wet with you. And if no one does, totally cool. (laughs) Um, But I'm in with you. During this time of communion, just come up and say hi to me and tell me that's what you wanna do and after the service, we'll we'll do that and we'll be very careful not to slip on the floor afterwards. Um, So Jesus, here we are. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for rising again. Thank you. Will you, for those that need, I think it's all of us, we need our imagination widened, widened around your transcendence. But I also pray, Lord, that you will break through in this moment with that intimate love that you fully give to us. And may you set us free to a faith that isn't shaped by this world, but a faith that comes directly from you in Jesus' name. Amen.